20 years ago, early on a Tuesday morning, I was with a group of guys leaving Louisville, Kentucky, headed to Lexington uh, to play a round of golf. And we stopped, uh, the four of us, and pulled into a service station and went inside Thornton's to get a cup of coffee and noticed inside there was a, a TV screen and on the screen was an image. And this is the picture that we saw on the screen. The commentator was raising questions regarding how could it be a possible for a plane to do something like this. And so as we drove, one of the guys uh, got a phone call from his wife and said the second trade tower has been hit by another plane. And that was the image. The North Tower was hit at 8.46 a.m. 17 minutes later at 9.03. The South Tower was hit and 34 minutes after that at 9.37, the Pentagon was hit. And this was what we saw. 26 minutes after the Pentagon was struck at 10.03, the final plane crashed in a, fear, a field near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Shanks, Shanksville, and this is the picture of the crash site. So in total, four commercial airlines were hijacked and used as weapons. American Flight Airline Flight 11 from Boston to L.A., went down and 92 lives were lost. United Airlines Flight 175, also from Boston to LA, went down with 65 lives lost. American Airlines Flight 77 from Washington, D.C. to LA went down with 64 lives lost. United Airlines Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco went down with 44 lives lost. Behind it, there were 19 devout, conservative, Islamic believers, all belonging to Al-Qaeda, under the lead of Osama bin Laden, in obedience, in obedience to the Quran. Surah 3, 151 says, we shall cast terror into the hearts of those who disbelieve, referring to all non-Muslims. Surah 2, 191, and we shall kill them, a reference to non-Muslims, wherever they are found when they disbelieve, kill them, for such is the recompense of the disbeliever. Surah 9, verse 5, then kill the disbelievers, referring to non-Muslims, wherever you find them, lie and wait for them in each and every ambush. And contrary to what you may hear about Islam, it is not peaceful, which is, I referenced, is directly from the Quran, which is orthodox Islamic teaching from their holy book. So in obedience to their teaching, by the way, Islam, the word literally means to submit. So in obedience, obedience to their teaching, submitted to the training necessary for invoking terror 
on American infidels, sacrificing their own lives for the glory of Allah and securing for themselves eternal life in paradise. The 9-11 Commission discovered two years prior to this, that time that in the fall of 1999, Osama bin Laden met with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. They met together in Kandahar in Afghanistan and developed their strategy for carrying out their attacks on important American landmarks. They targeted the Trade Center Towers because they were a symbol of American economics. They targeted the Pentagon because it was a symbol of America's military. They targeted the United States Capitol building as a symbol of American politics and law. Fortunately, American Airline Flight 93 was 42 minutes late departing, which made it possible for the passengers on the plane to receive texts and phone calls from family members and friends who were telling them about the other attacks, resulting in their heroic efforts of storming the cockpit and confronting the terrorists, preventing the plane from being successful, sparing the lives of our congressmen and senators who were in session. So in total, those attacks were responsible for the loss of almost 3,000 American lives and over 25,000 injuries. The bottom line was on September 11th, 2001, we as Americans realized we had an enemy who had declared war. And for the last 20 years, we've been fighting in Afghanistan at a tune of $300 million per day, a total of $2.2 trillion, and have lost the lives of over 2,500 American soldiers and thousands and thousands of American contractors, not counting all of those who've been killed uh, who live in those areas, civilians and soldiers alike. I want to say to you, as serious and as deadly as the war has been with Al-Qaeda, it and all other wars compared to it and before it all pale in comparison to the epic spiritual battle that we as spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ must engage on a daily basis. I want to say that again because there are many of you who don't believe this. The war in Afghanistan and all other wars before it pale in comparison to the epic spiritual battle in which you and I as followers of Christ must engage in on a daily basis. And I repeat, most of us don't believe that. If you are a Christian, you are in a war. And the war is real and the stakes are high. We have an invisible enemy whose objective is to thwart all of God's plans, all of his purposes, and will go to any length necessary to destroy the foundational institutions that God has established. Those three institutions are marriage, family, and the church. Our enemy wants to destroy your marriage, your family, and your church, and all churches like it. Strong marriages, 
built upon the gospel result in strong families, and strong families built on the gospel result in strong churches. God has established and ordained these institutions for advancing his interests, for advancing the gospel here and around the world, and you and I are in a war. Soldiers, Paul refers to soldiers in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our enemy, while not visible, is very real and disguises himself in subtle ways. The challenge is to recognize the battle and learn how to fight and how to defend ourselves and our families and our communities and our churches for his glory. And to do so requires that we understand the world in which we live, we understand the enemy who is at work against us, and we understand how to defend ourselves with the weapons that God has given us. Our world, our adversary, and the weapons. And so, if you have your Bible, listen to Paul's counsel. He writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 6, but I want to preface this by reading also in 1 Peter 5. It could be considered a parallel passage, so in 1 Peter 5, and then we'll read in Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, and all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect Establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against 
spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And don't forget it for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray with me. Father, in these next few moments, very brief, we ask that your spirit would guide us through and from your word and that you would bring forth a deeper conviction about the spiritual realities in which we live and are engaged. Those realities that are engaged against us and wake us up and keep us sober and vigilant and alert to these schemes and wiles and attacks. For your glory, we pray today in Jesus' name, amen. The background to the text in Ephesians, uh, six chapters, you know that, and first three chapters in the book of Ephesians are devoted to one message, and that is a message of the gospel. Three chapters, all devoted to explaining the depths and the realities of the gospel. And those three chapters are extensive for a reason. And the reason is that God wants us to know and understand the gospel. To have a, a, a wealth, a breadth of understanding and knowledge regarding the gospel. And then Paul, after those three chapters, shifts gears and says, now, that you know it, that you're grounded, rooted in it, put it into practice. Apply it and live like the people that we've been saved to be. And starting in the fourth chapter of Ephesians, there are four walks, practically, that we're called to walk. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, now walk worthy of the calling with which you have received. That calling is in the gospel. And I would say that to walk in the gospel means to, whether young or old, whatever age you are, root your life in the gospel. Remember the gospel on a regular basis. Talk about the gospel. Think about the gospel. Study the Bible, the gospel. Teach it. Think on it. Share it with other people. Preach the gospel back to yourself. Pray the gospel. Pray the gospel over other people as you pray with them. I prayed the gospel right at the beginning of our worship service this morning. God, we thank you for 
who you are, your goodness, your grace and mercy. For all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of your glory. And every one of us here in this place deserve nothing but eternal separation and death from you. But in your goodness and your mercy, in that while we were dead, demonstrated your love for us and Christ died for us. Praying the gospel. Whenever I'm with a person, make a hospital visit, a home visit, or get an opportunity to pray with someone and I'm not sure about their relationship with Jesus Christ or have been called into hospital rooms as they remove breathing machines and life support systems and I'll always pray the gospel over that person and pray the gospel over the family because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's God's power unto holiness. We need to walk in the gospel. He calls us to walk in love, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Walk in love. It's the supreme mark of being a Christian and following Jesus, John 13, 34, 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love, by the way that you treat each other in the church and in your home and your, under your roof. And then the third walk, Ephesians 5, 8, walk in light. Light. He is light. He's the light of the world. His word is truth, his life. And so we walk in the life and in obedience, bearing fruit. And then he says in Ephesians 5:15, walk in wisdom. Be wise. Redeem the time. The days are evil. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, after laying out the gospel, calling us to put it into practice with all of these walks. Then he refers to the institutions in chapters 5 and 6, the three institutions of marriage, family, and the church. Marriage, family, and the church. He refers to these institutions and stresses the point at the very end we need to understand that we are in a battle. As soldiers of Jesus Christ engaged in a war and we've been called to bear arms. <laughs> I was thinking this morning at the end of the message, you know, we, we usually have a time of response at the end and an invitation song, a time for us to just to respond to however God might be speaking to us through his word by the Holy Spirit. And so we have a song and I thought how cool would it be for an invitation song to play a military song since we're soldiers engaged in a, in a war and, and we wouldn't play taps, but we would play Reveille. Wouldn't that be cool? To play re Reveille, a, a call, it's a call to, to wake up, to be alert, to get up, to get going, to engage. Peter says, as we read earlier, be sober, be vigilant, which means to be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion on the prowl, roaming around, seeking someone that he might devour. Do you remember the book of Job when, when the Bible talks about Satan in the book of Job and it says that he's roaming to and fro over the face of the earth? Peter says he's like a roaring lion on the roam, on the roam, seeking someone to destroy. Who is that someone that he's seeking to destroy? Will it be anyone, especially a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ who is asleep, who's not alert, who's not watchful, who's not on guard? 
The enemy will come in and attack and cause great destruction. Notice in chapter 6, verse 1 of our text, he says to the Ephesians, be strong, be strong in the Lord and in his might, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where your strength comes from. Strong in the Lord. The idea is that you and I cannot walk in fellowship with God and serve God in our own strength. The fact is, someone said, when you become a friend of God, you become an enemy of the evil one. And I would also note in Ephesians 6 that at the end of that text, if you have your Bible, notice verses 18 and 19. Paul is asking them to pray for him. He says, remember me. And it kind of conveys to me, even after he'd served God for all of the many years, and he's now towards the end of his life and his ministry, there's no indication of retirement. No indication of slowing down. Nothing conveys that Paul is getting ready to retire to the island of Crete and walk the beaches of Crete and collect uh, seashells in a little bucket. That's not where his life is. He's still walking in the gospel, still engaged, still following the Holy Spirit's lead, recognizing that he needs the Spirit's power and strength, and so he urges the believers, hey, don't forget to pray for me. If you and I are going to be alert and victorious, then first we need to understand the world in which we live. Ephesians chapter 6 provides somewhat of a biblical worldview for us. It's not an exhaustive worldview. There's more that the Bible says about you and I as Christians having a worldview. In other words, we have a a set of glasses, a lens that we look through, and we look through that lens, and everything that happens in our life and in the world, we process through that lens. That's a biblical worldview, and so Paul provides some insights here about this worldview. We need to understand the world, and the world, he says, consists of two supernatural realities, Two supernatural realities to this world. There is both the visible world and there is also an an invisible world. The visible world is that which we believe in. All of us here believe in the visible world, the physical world. It is subject to our senses. Do you remember when you were going, growing up in elementary school and you learned about the five senses, can you, do you remember what they are? Sight, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And so we believe in the physical, the visible, because we can, it's, it's, it's subject to our senses, and so we believe in it. The Bible says this physical world in which you and I believe also has two dimensions to it. There is a redeemed dimension, and then there is a fallen dimension to the physical world. The redeemed dimension includes the friends of God, those who are saved, those who have been reconciled with him, those like you and I who are in fellowship with God, walking with God, enjoying the relationship with him and serving him, the church. That is, they... they, one dimension to this physical world, and then there is to this physical world another dimension. It is the the fallen dimension, which includes the unsaved, 
those who are disconnected with God, enemies of God, living in darkness, living in their sins. But that's the physical world. That's the visible world in which we live. But Paul describes in the text an invisible world. An invisible world. And I would propose to you in our country, in the United States, our culture, there seems to be fewer and fewer people all the time who believe in an invisible world. And sadly, it seems that science and human reason and education are causing more and more people to disbelieve in an invisible world because it's not subject to our senses. And we can't prove it. But the Bible declares for you and I as God's people that the invisible world is just as real as the visible world. Just as Jesus described in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus who didn't understand spiritual things, he said, Nicodemus, your spiritual birth needs to be just as real to you as your physical birth. The visible and the invisible. And like the visible world having two dimensions, the invisible world has two dimensions to it. There is a redeemed, a holy dimension, and then there is also an evil dimension to the invisible world. The holy dimension, which is good and holy and righteous, consists of the Godhead, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it consists of angels, and it consists of heaven. And the invisible world also includes an evil dimension of an agent who's referred to as Satan, as the devil, and he has agents. The Bible refers to as demons, and there is a place called hell that is very real that Jesus referred to over and over and over. Look in your text in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul is describing the invisible world, and he says it's full of evil, and notice he says it's full of rulers and principalities and authorities and spiritual hosts that are wicked. A hierarchy of, he's describing there of fallen angelic beings, demons, all operating in heavenly realms, in the invisible realm, but also very much at work in the physical, the visible realm in which you and I live in. Paul is saying you and I as believers, as soldiers of Christ engaged in this war, need to understand this world, this reality in which we live. And second, he said we need to understand the enemy, the enemy that we're up against. Satan, the devil, is real. And when a person grows up who's been raised in church and taught the Bible and they go through a stage of their life perhaps where they begin to doubt and question this, there's nothing that the enemy would want more. Then it began for someone to doubt and to question his reality. The Bible says that the devil functions both in the visible realms and in the invisible realms, that he is a master at disguising himself. In the fact, Paul says and describes him as an angel of light. He has great camouflage. 
In Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28, the Bible provides a portrait of the, of the devil. He's very intelligent, a beautiful angel. His name originally was Lucifer. And the Bible describes that Lucifer became discontent living as God's servant and wanted to assume God's place and rule and have dominion and control with God or above God. And as a result, the Bible says that he fell from heaven and the book of Revelation says one-third of all of the angels of heaven fell with him now who are his demons. Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, says on occasion, he says, I actually saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He was existent. He saw it. All of which provides some insight on the origin of why there is evil in our world. And our enemy works to destroy God's purposes, to foil God's plans, Hillcrest, hear me, he will work, he is at work to do everything that he can to destroy Hillcrest Baptist Church. And if you think that he's not possible at causing a split and a crisis and chaos and division and hatred and hostility and all the things that he wants to, you are a fool. He is at work against us as a church. He is at work against your marriage. He is at work trying to destroy the lives of your kids and your grandkids. And many of us are asleep. And we need to play a spiritual revelry every day. Say, wake up, be alert, get on guard. He wants to destroy your grandkids. Went to my first football game here Friday night. Good win, coach. And I enjoyed it. Saw many of you. I thought that's a pretty good place to hang out probably on Friday night, see a lot of Hillcrest folks. But I wonder of all of those young people there, how many of them know Jesus? How many of them really know the Lord? who more than just knowing about him, they really know him and their lives are going to make decisions and they're going to make bad choices and do things and the enemy is trying to destroy their lives. To destroy the institutions of marriage and family and church and community that God wants to bless. Do you know that Jesus said of the enemy, he's the father of all lies? And he intends to steal everything that you have, to destroy everything that you have that you know, and to kill you and to kill everyone that you know and love. Satan is at work against us in our homes, in our churches, to keep people from coming to Christ. And listen, if he can weaken the church, and he can weaken our unity and weaken our love and weaken our commitment to the gospel, then he will hinder people from coming to faith in Christ. He will work to keep us as believers from being effective. Ephesians 6.11 in the text refers to his schemes and his wiles that he works against us and he works through temptation and seduction and creates error and lies and confusion and accuses us and condemns us to weaken us, to make us ineffective. 
Finally, not only do we need to understand the world in which we live, and we need to understand our enemy who's against us, we need to understand how to defend ourselves. Paul says in the text, put on the equipment that God has provided. And I would propose to you the primary piece of equipment. The is not a piece, it's not a piece, it's a person. To put on the Holy Spirit. To be immersed. Paul said, right, Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, don't be pickled, don't be soaked with alcohol, but what? He says, be soaked, be pickled, be immersed with the person of the, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Let him be the predominant influence of your life on a daily basis. 1 John 4, 14, you know the verse, greater is he than what? Than he that is in the world. Do you know that's referring to the Holy Spirit? The Lord Jesus Christ, who the Holy Spirit indwelling us, greater is the Spirit of God in us than he that is in the world. And so to defend ourselves, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Walk with Jesus, John 15, abide in Jesus, for apart from him we can do nothing. I've said this before, I believe that being uh, filled with the Spirit is synonymous in the Bible with abiding in Christ. Same thing, you say, well, how do I become filled with the Spirit? Abide in Jesus, walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, sing with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, immerse your mind on Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And then second, be strong in him. Be strong in him. And then two times in this text, in verse 11 and also in verse 13, he says then, put on the armor of God, all of the armor of God, the whole of it. And one of the reasons that the Roman world was so dominant during Jesus' day was because of their military. Their military. Now, I... Uh, I was flipping channels one night this week and came across Gladiator. And I like that movie, you know. Gladiator, the Roman games. But the Romans were powerful. They had a great military. And the soldiers were equipped with the best armor, covered from head to foot. A helmet, a breastplate, a belt, a sandal, and all covered with, defended with a shield and a sword. The point is the soldier was fully protected. Every place was purposeful. The idea was no soldier would ever engage in battle without protection. And I want to propose to you, nor should we. Listen, if you get up, go out that door in the morning without being intentional to say, to get your mind set on the Lord Jesus Christ or spending time in his word or spending in prayer and just getting engaged... Colossians, Paul said to the Colossians, set your mind, set, get it set. If we go out there and we're not set, we are going into battle without any armor. Spiritual armor that God has provided fall, that he describes falls into three categories. First is God's word, second is godly character, and then the last is prayer. And I want to close this series next Sunday morning out on praying in the spirit. So let me just talk about these two pieces of spiritual armor, these categories, in which is God's word and godly character. This is the way you arm yourself. This is the way to defend yourself. God's word is referred to as the sword of the spirit, which means that you and I, offensively, we're, we're to be people of the book. 
God has given us truth that we need for our minds to saturate our minds, to protect our minds from deception, to encourage us when our enemy condemns us or to equip us. You remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that every man, every woman of God may be thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished to every good work. Think about Jesus when he began his public ministry after he was baptized. Matthew 4, a couple of places, talks about as he, the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, and each experience, ex, uh, idea, aspect of his temptation, Jesus, what did he do? How did he defend himself? It says he remembered the word. Every time Satan would tempt him, he, Jesus would say, it is written and would fall back on the word of God. He remembered it. Listen, you can't remember something you never knew. If you don't, if you don't saturate your mind and your life with the word of God, the Holy Spirit's not going to bring it back to your remembrance when you need it. And that's defenseless. Defenseless. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Those times in your life where you start having thoughts on a daily basis that are sinful and wrong, and you know it. If you don't know the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is not going to bring anything to your mind, to your memory to combat it. You're left defenseless just to think things over and over, things that are not true, things that are of the enemy, things that are evil, things that are full of hatred and anger and bitterness and all the flesh flesh that's described in the scriptures. Adam and Eve, on the other hand, when tempted, what happened to them? They were deceived. They were seduced with lies. Let me ask you this question. As you think about your biblical knowledge of the scriptures, would you, what kind of grade level would you say you're on? Would you say your knowledge of the scriptures is like a kindergarten level? Maybe fifth grade level? High school level? A level beyond high school? What, what would you say is your level of biblical knowledge and truth? I want to encourage you to immerse your mind. I spoke with a person on the phone last night who called me. Asked if they could talk for a couple minutes. It was great. I just paused the Michigan game. No problem. I would have done it anyways. They were struggling. Struggling with some things. And had an opportunity to share with them. And kind of Because I could relate to them. With what some of the things they were struggling. And shared with them. That. When I don't spend time with God on a regular basis in his word and prayer, my spirit becomes disordered. You know what I'm talking about? A disordered spirit? Well, your spirit is just disordered. It's out of order. It's out of balance. It's disordered. Your attitude, your thoughts about yourself and about other people and about your life just gets disordered. And the only thing that I could say to the person 
And I says, yeah, I understand that. And, the, and there's another way I know to combat it than to get along with God and just immerse your mind, spend some time with him in his word and prayer and allow him to begin to reorder, reorder what's faulty, disordered. You see, it can be an attack. How many of you know someone that you love, a family member, a co-worker, someone else who you know today? Their, their mind, their mindset, and the things that they're thinking and their attitude is not what God wants it to be. Anybody know anybody like that? They're under attack. They're not thinking right and clearly and spiritually according to truth. And so we need to immerse our mind with the Lord's Word. And second, if you think about godly character, so it's the Word of God character, think about the belt. The belt, he says, is truthfulness. The breastplate is righteousness. The sandal is readiness. The shield is faith. And the helmet is a reference to salvation. If you lump all that together, what you come up with is a, a believer who's dressed for success with godly character and integrity and genuineness, clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. What you may not know about September 11th is about Heather Penny. Anybody know about Heather Penny? True story. Heather Penny was a F-16 fighter pilot, tops in her class, and moved to become a F-16 fighter pilot instructor. And she was based in Andrews Air Force Base right outside of Washington, D.C. And after three of those planes, two hitting the trade towers and one hitting the Pentagon and the fourth plane still up in the air. And when they found out that that plane too was hijacked and had been turned and started out flying west and the hijackers turned it back east and it was heading for Washington, D.C., Heather Penny was immediately called to put her suit on and get into the F-16 pilot and to make sure that flight number 93 didn't make it back to the United States Capitol building or the White House. They weren't sure which it was targeted for. And so within seconds, literally, running to the F-16, putting on a suit, quickly, as fast as they could do, get, her, get that F-16 off the ground with Heather Penny in the cockpit. And what made the mission so intense was there was not any time to arm her aircraft with any of the air-to-air -air missiles. Her mission was to get the F-16 in the air to hover over D.C. and any commercial flight that came that way, specifically flight number 93, her mission was to kamikaze that F-16 into the tail or the cockpit of that American airline flight number 93. And she's circled the perimeter 
of Washington, D.C., and her assignment was to give her life, to lay it down, a mission that she gladly accepted. I want to appeal to you this morning from the message to be alert, be watchful, to be vigilant. But my appeal to you is from the gospel. Because there is one who gave his life for us, who defeated our enemy, defeating sin and its consequences, defeating the ultimate consequence of death on our behalf, securing for us the victory, who laid his life down and sacrificed for you and for me. And the Lord Jesus Christ is calling all of us to join his army, to enlist as soldiers, and to engage in the war to walk in the Spirit, to pick up and to use the weapons that he's entrusted to us and by his presence and his power to overcome the schemes, the wiles that the enemy intends to use against you. Hillcrest, be warned, be alert, be vigilant, be watchful, be prayerful. Saturate your mind with God's Word, allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in you spiritual character that you need to have to be effective for Him. Let's pray as we close.